you want to go ahead and get your Bibles and open them up to the book of First John, that is where we'll be this morning. You got me? First John, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some Bibles on tray tables right behind the seat sections. You can go ahead and feel free to grab one of those. Uh, we've been taking our time for the last few weeks, and we will through the spring, to be looking at uh, the letter of the Apostle John to a young church, a church much like us, uh, in the city of Ephesus. Uh, and it's good to see so many friends and family here this morning for the parent commissioning. So I want to take a few minutes uh, just to catch all of us up as to where we are in this letter to help make sense of where we are going forward this morning. Uh, John, the apostle who wrote this letter to the church, uh, we know from the Gospels, uh, was the closest friend that Jesus had in his, in his life here on earth. Of his 12 disciples, it said that John, the man that wrote the letter we're studying, uh, was the beloved disciple. Uh, he knew Jesus, loved Jesus, and was loved by Jesus in a, in a very special way. Um, and for his faith in Jesus, he suffered much throughout his life. Um, and here he is at the, the last stages of his life, uh, looking over this church in this region of Ephesus. Um, and he's recognizing some shifts in the ground underneath them. Uh, that there are people who have been a part of this church, who have now left this church, and who are coming back to this church saying, you know what, what we believed is only partially true. There are other aspects that some of you have yet to actually understand, uh, yet to actually know, and yet to actually experience. Uh, And so they were beginning to undermine the confidence and the assurance uh, that the church actually had in the gospel. So John, being a a wise and and loving pastor, uh, he wrote a letter to this church uh, with an eye towards and an emphasis towards uh, reinforcing the confidence and the assurance that this church has in the message that they heard and the message in which they believe. This is why John is writing the letter. And, and we've looked at it, and I'll kind of walk you through the big things we've seen so far uh, from the beginning of the letter. John, in writing this with an eye towards assuring them and giving them confidence, initially draws them back to and their attention towards uh, the fellowship that is theirs as followers of Christ through faith in Jesus that they have a particular type of fellowship with one another, but ultimately with God himself because of their faith in Christ. For all of eternity, God has existed in fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, fully sufficient and satisfied in himself, and that it's the privilege of the believer through faith in Christ to be drawn into this fellowship that God has with himself to experience and taste this fellowship that that comes from knowing God, and that this fellowship, this privilege that the believer has is to be the source of a joy that is to mark the life of a follower of Christ. And so he starts in this effort to assure them and to, to reinforce their assurance by pointing them to the privilege that's theirs as followers of Christ. And a mark of knowing that privilege, of tasting that fellowship, is to be a joy. There's to be a joy that marks the life of a follower of Christ that isn't conditional, it isn't circumstantial, but it's rooted, it's grounded, it's developed in the experience of the fellowship of God himself. And from there, John begins to to unpack some different marks, some different identifiers of the life of a follower of Christ that would give confidence and give assurance that we really do know God. He says that a follower of Christ, their, their life and fellowship with God will be increasingly marked by an awareness of the seriousness of their sin. If we're living in fellowship with God, if we, if we exist in fellowship with the Holy Creator God, then there will be a growing awareness in our soul regarding the seriousness of our sin. We'll see sin for what it really is. We'll be quick to recognize its seriousness and the damage that it causes not only to our soul, but to our relationship with God and relationship to others. 
And as the, the sense of the seriousness of our sin begins to rise, along with that will come a, a compelling and growing desire to quickly agree with God about our sin. That's what John was talking about in confession. As we see the seriousness of our sin for what it is, there will be a desire that grows in the life of a follower of Christ to agree with God about their sin, to not try to make peace with their sin, to not try to disregard their sin, but to agree with God about their sin, to confess their sin to God and to receive the forgiveness that comes from God and the cleansing that comes from God and the reconciliation of this fellowship and this experience of joy that is the privilege of a follower of Christ. This is what John is, is getting after when he uses this phrase over and over again that followers of Christ are to be walking in the light. This is what it looks like. When we walk in the light and we live in the fellowship with God, that is ours through faith in Christ, we grow in our capacity and, the, and speed with which we see the seriousness of our sin and we grow in our desire and our capacity and our speed to agree with God in confession to confess our sin to God, to live in the light, to want it to be out there, to want it to be exposed to God, that we might receive forgiveness and cleansing of our sin. This is what marks the life of a follower of Christ. And John is saying to this church over and over again, and he'll say it over and over again throughout this letter, this is how you can know that you really know God. These are marks of the life of a follower of Christ. And what he goes on to say, and we began to look at in chapter two last week, is that the mark of a, a life of a follower of Christ is seen in an increasing, growing cultivation of character, a cultivation of the soul that increasingly reflects the character of Christ. That as we live in the light, aware of the seriousness of our sin, growing to hate our sin, growing in our capacity to, to speedily and quickly confess our sin to God, that we want to live in that light, what begins to happen as the Spirit of God works in our soul? Our soul and our character become conformed increasingly to the character of Christ, that we become images and reflections of the character of Christ. This is what John says is to mark the life of a follower of Christ. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 6, kind of where we ended last week, John said this, by this we may know that we are in him. Here, here's how you can know that you really know God and abide in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The life of a Christian, the life of a follower of Christ, John says, is to be lived in the light. And as you live your life in the light, your walking, your obedience, your delight, and your affection for God and his word and his glory and the supernatural work of God's spirit in you begins to cultivate the character of your soul to reflect the character of Christ. And you begin to look more like him. And you delight and you desire to walk as he walked. So this is what John is pointing this church towards. This is what John is encouraging in their life. He's saying you can and you should be growing. You should be transforming. You should be conforming into the image and likeness of Christ. It's not only possible, John is saying, for a follower of Christ to do this, but it's actually evidenced. It's actually evidence of the work of God in the heart of a Christian. This is what we are to look for. And so we kind of began to say along with John as we've been looking through chapters one and two, can you see this trajectory in your life? Can you recognize an increasing delight in your soul to be conformed to the character and likeness of Christ? Is there an increasing delight and desire in your soul to surrender your soul to the word of God? 
are the affections of your soul changing? And not only are the affections changing and the desires changing, but can we see those things beginning to be lived out in increasing ways in new acts of obedience towards God, not out of some effort to earn anything from God, but out of delight in who God is and the love and the grace to which he's shown you. This is what John is asking, and this is what we've been asking ourselves over the last few weeks. Are we becoming, are you becoming more like Christ? Are the contours of your character and of your soul being shaped by God's spirit and being shaped into the image of God's son? Is there an increasing sense in you of the seriousness of your sin and an increasing delight in the law and word of God? Is this going on in you? John wants to reinforce this church back then. He wants to reinforce us now. He wants to reinforce the assurance that we have that we can know that we really know God. And as he does that, he's also undoing any false assurance that any one of us may have or may live under that we really do know God when we don't. And now this morning, as John continues on, he's going to hone in a little more specifically on what he was talking about and what we talked about last week. He's going to take this obedience to the word of God, to the commands of God, and this conformity to the character of Christ, and he's going to tie those two things together. And he's going to say, how can you know? How can you have confidence? How can you have assurance that you really do know God? He's going to say, are you loving one another? as Jesus has loved you and continues to love you. How can you know that you do know God? You can know by the way in which you love one another. This is what John is gonna get after this morning. So before we read, I wanna pray for us because we're gonna need God's help this morning as we go through his word. So let me pray for us and then we'll read. God, thank you for the privilege that we have again to gather together as your people. Um, Lord, I would just ask that we would delight in your word, that you would do what only you can do and you would create in us an increasing delight in your word, an increasing satisfaction in your word, an increasing trust in your word and an increasing conformity of our soul and of our character into the likeness of your son. This is what we want. This is what we desire. This is what we want to delight in for your glory and ultimately for our joy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I am going to turn a clock on because I think I was still preaching by the time half of you got in here for the second service. So I think the new strategy is we're just going to turn my mic off. And that's when I have to stop. So I'm just going to keep going. But if you've got your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2, let's see what John says about how we can continue to know that we know God. Chapter 2, verse 7, let's look at what he says. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. And this old commandment is the word that you have heard. So very simply, what John is saying is is this. He's saying, church, I'm not writing to you anything that you aren't already aware of. Nothing that I've already said and nothing that I'm about to say is a new commandment for you. Is, is a new level of obedience for you, is a new thing that you actually have to do. What I'm going to tell you and what I have already told you is just simply what you already know and it's what you've already heard. 
You've already heard it from the very beginning. You heard it when you began your life as a Christian. John's already told us in this letter that the substance of his testimony to this church and the substance of this letter that he's constantly pointing back to is the person and work of Christ. And John is saying, when you heard about Christ, when you heard about his life, when you heard about his death, when you heard about his resurrection, when you heard about his sending of his spirit to transform your heart, when you heard about his promised return to make all things new and all things right in the end, when you heard about Christ, you heard about his teaching, you heard about him. And I'm not telling you anything new. It's, it's old stuff to you. I mean, one of the things that I love about this particular letter, about 1 John, is that this church uh, would have had a rich tradition of, of letters in Scripture already by the time that John wrote this. You see, John, the, the apostle that wrote this letter, was also John, as we already said, the, the disciple of Christ. And he wrote what we have in our Bibles as the Gospel of John. So this church would have been familiar with John's writing about Jesus' life and, and his ministry here on the earth, his, his biography of the person and work of Jesus. And so when John says that I'm not writing you any new commandment, it's what you've heard from the beginning, their minds would have automatically jumped back to what they had heard about Jesus and what Jesus had said through what they had learned in John's gospel. And what John was probably pointing their minds to and expecting their minds to, to pull up from memory was what Jesus said to his disciples and to his followers on the night before he went to the cross, the night he went to the cross, really, hours before he went there in his last meal and, and time with his followers. And Jesus said this, he said, this is my commandment. This is my commandment, Jesus said, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one, no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. John's saying, I'm not telling you anything new and that you were supposed to walk as Jesus walked, to live as Jesus lived. I'm not telling you anything that you haven't heard from the very beginning. When you heard about Jesus, you heard about who he was and you heard about what he says. Jesus said, this is his commandment, that you love one another as I, as I have loved you. Then John says, look at verse eight. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it's not a new commandment in one sense in that you've never actually heard of it before. You, you've heard about it from the very beginning, from the time you heard about Jesus and you heard about his teaching. You've known what I've told you and what I'm about to tell you, but in another sense, it is new. It, it is new. And, and how is it new? John says it's new in him. And this is what he means. What he's saying is that because of Jesus, because of his life here on the earth, the life he lived in perfect desire and delight and submission to the glory of God and the will of God, the life that God created us to live, that he lived in our place instead, Jesus fulfilled the law and fulfilled the commandment in a way that God's people had never been able to fulfill before. I mean, God's law in the Old Testament actually included the commandment that God's people love their neighbor as themselves. It wasn't new information even when Jesus said it. But it's new in Jesus because Jesus did what God's people had never been able to do before. He kept that commandment perfectly. And this is what John is saying. It's a new commandment in the sense that it's new because in him it's been fulfilled in a way that has never been able to be fulfilled before. In fact, in that last time with his disciples, that last moment with them before he would go to the cross to pay the price and to die their death for their sin, he actually said this to them as well. In John chapter 13, for those of you that are interested, Jesus said this, a new commandment 
I do give to you. This would have been going on in the minds of the people when they read this letter. A new commandment I do give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. In Jesus, the command of love was fulfilled in a way that God's people could never fulfill it before. So it's new in the sense that Jesus, in Jesus, it makes it new. Jesus, in his life, demonstrates the extent to which God's love has been shown to us. You see, when God's people would have heard the law back in Leviticus and the command that said, you're to love your neighbor as yourself, they would have looked at that command and said, okay, I recognize that and out of obedience to God, I will pursue that. But the, the circle to which they felt like they were obligated by God's command to actually show that love was really small. You see, they believed that anyone who didn't love the Lord their God, Yahweh, Jehovah, who didn't know him, who wasn't part of the tribe of Israel, the people of God, they felt no obligation to God's command to love them. Their circle was very small. But when Jesus came, when Jesus lived obedience, perfect obedience to this command to love his neighbor as himself, the extent to which that love was spread, the circle to which that love was shown was expanded to the ends of the earth. Jesus came and was quickly called a friend of sinners. The extent to which God's love was shown in the life of Jesus was extended beyond the little circle of the people of Israel. This is how it's new in him. The extent to which God's love is seen has been broadened. But even more so, the length to which God's love would go to reconcile sinful men and women back to himself was seen in Jesus and fulfilled in Jesus in a way that it was never seen or able to be fulfilled before by God's people. The extent to which Jesus loved and the extent to which he then calls his followers of him to love is seen in his humility and not considering equality with God, Paul said, is something to be grasped. But taking on the form of a man, taking on the form of a human and living a life here on this fallen world, being tempted in every way as you and I are yet without sin and then willingly not under compulsion, but willingly laying his life down as a sacrifice for your sin and my sin. Jesus fulfilled the law in a way that we never could, but he expanded the extent to which it was to be seen and the length to which his love and God's love was to go. But then John says something just staggering. And if you go really quickly, you might miss it. He says it's a new commandment in the sense that in Jesus, it's been fulfilled in a way that it never could be before, but it's a new commandment because it's true in you as well. Because it's true in you as well. And you see, the reality of it is we may actually accept the fact that this is a new commandment because it's true in Jesus, that Jesus did what people could never do, what God's people could never do. And he obeyed and loved perfectly and obediently and delight to God for God's glory. And we can go yes and amen to that, but that's to be true in me. Not only to be true in me and be true in you, but it is, John said. You see, the one who has loved us perfectly, Jesus Christ, the one who has loved us perfectly, he now calls us to love one another the way in which, to the extent and the length to which he has loved us. And here's how it's true in you. He has given you everything you need to make that love possible. 
See, it's new in you. It's new in us. It's new in God's people because God has given us what we need to be obedient to his commands, what he's commanded, he's actually empowered and enabled us to actually do. I mean, this is part of the fruit and the riches of the gospel. With new hearts and new affections and new desires and a new spirit, we have a new power to be obedient to God's commands for God's glory out of delight in God's grace. And John says this is a new commandment because Jesus has done what God's people could never do. And it's true in you because now you can as well. And not only can you, but you should. You should. Jesus said this is my commandment to you, that you love one another. That you love one another, just as I have, I, have, I have loved you. But then John goes on to say that this commandment is now true in us because we can do the very thing that God commands us to do because he's given us what we need to actually do it. And then he says, because the darkness is passing away. In Jesus, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he put an end to the rule and the reign of sin and the dominion of sin on this earth. And one day when he returns, he will complete his process of redemption and restoration. But right now we live in between that time. But the darkness is passing away and the true light, the real light, the genuine light, the light of Christ and the light of God's glory is already shining and it's shining in God's people and it's to shine through God's people so that wherever God's people are, in obedience to God's commands, out of delight for God's grace and God's glory, we are to reflect the genuine and true light of Christ in our love for one another. So wherever God's people are, the darkness is to be being pushed away by our love for one another. I mean, this is, it's unthinkable. Our love for one another, the way in which we love one another, the way in which we practically reflect a gratitude for the love that God has shown us, the extent and the length to which God has loved us, the way we practically do that for one another, that is part of God's evangelism plan for the nations. Last night, David Burchard walked into my office while I was working on the sermon. And I'm generally not there on Saturday night working on it, but I was last night and he walked in and he leaned over my sofa and he said, so, now I'm sitting here trying to work and he just leans over the sofa and says, so, in the text for tomorrow, what idea or point has struck you to your core this week? And I'm sitting there trying to figure out how am I gonna do this? I mean, how am I gonna preach this? And I stood back, I thought, that's a good question. And as I thought about it, this was the answer. I really have a hard time believing, not with my mind, but with my heart that then reflects in the way I live. I really have a hard time believing that an essential aspect of God's plan for the redemption of the nations is my love for my brother and sister in Christ. I have a really hard time with that. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And let me say this. This is how we were talking about it in the first service, and this is how it helped me and challenged me and convicted me. Our love for one another, our tangible, demonstrated love for one another, to the extent and the length to which God has loved us, that is not the gospel. 
our love for one another, our demonstrated love for one another is not the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the life, death, resurrection, promised return, sending of God's spirit that transforms people into the character and reflection of Christ. Only the gospel, only God's word about God's son transforms people and saves people. Only the gospel does that. Our love for one another is not the gospel. That's not what Jesus is saying and that's not what John is getting after here. Loving one another is not what saves people who do not know God. But in God's wisdom, and this is where I struggle, this is where I'm being honest with you, this is where I struggle. In God's wisdom, in God's kingdom economy, our love for one another, our tangible love for one another that reflects a gratitude in God's love for us to the length he went and to the extent he went for us. Our tangible love for one another is what God has planned to authenticate the profession that we give to other people. It doesn't save other people, but it authenticates the profession of our mouths. Anyone can walk around talking about knowing God. Anyone can walk around talking about and claiming to, bi- to abide in God, to be saved by God. Anybody can walk around quoting verses and, and even hounding, having, having sound doctrine and, and right ideas and, and can communicate it with their mouth. But God says, in my economy and in my wisdom, what authenticates the profession of your mouth is, in your t- is seen in your tangible love for one another. Anybody can say something. Anybody can profess something. But as John has already said and will go on to say, that profession can be bogus. It can be hollow. It, it can actually be wrong. And when Jesus, and this was the other part that got me, when Jesus was telling his disciples on the night that he went to the cross, that the commandment that he was giving them to love one another was the way in which people would know that they really were his disciples. That they would really know that the profession of their mouth about who Jesus was and the power of his gospel and the transformation of their life was legit. Was in the way in which that people could see their love for one another What he was saying is that their love, their life, the way they lived every single day was actually on display for people to actually see. They lived in such a way that people could see their love for one another. Now, admittedly, that's a little more difficult in the 21st century than it was in the first. And I wanted to let myself off the hook for that. As I was really wrestling with this, I wanted to say, you know what, it's different. I'm in the 21st century. We have driveways and garages and cell phones and offices and doors and we go here to work and we go there to do that you know it's just different in the first century in the first century everybody was so interdependent on each other you needed your neighbor you needed your extended family you needed other people and so you were always in each other's business and in each other's lives and you lived in such close proximity to each other it was easy for people to see your love for one another but it's different now and the reality of it is yes it's different now but that doesn't take the principle off the hook in God's wisdom and in God's economy for God's plan to reach the nations, our profession is authenticated by our lives lived in front of other people and love towards the brothers and sisters in Christ. Which means we just have to be more intentional about how we do that. We have to live our lives every single day with more intentionality. I love the way Steve Timmons and Tim Chester say it in their book, Total Church. What this means for God's people in the 21st century is that we have to live everyday life with gospel intentionality. 
We just have to be more intentional in how we live and how we love. This is one of the big reasons why we do what we do here with our Redemption Hill communities and 3D groups. I mean, in our struggle with remaining sin, and remember John said, don't fool yourself. Don't think you don't struggle with this. Don't think you don't struggle with narcissism and self-interest and being preoccupied with your own agenda and your own glory to the dismissal of loving other people. Don't think you don't struggle with sin. That's true. You still struggle with it. You still will battle with it. We're all way too self-centered and we migrate towards being isolated from other people. This is why we do what we do in establishing these communities and these groups so that we can learn to love one another and be loved by other people so that we can experience God's grace and God's love that God meant to be experienced by his people in loving one another and serving one another. It's impossible to love other people the way that Jesus has loved us. It's impossible to do that and put the true light, the genuine light that John is talking about on display and pushing back the darkness without living and loving and other people, without being in relationships with other people. Without being in relationships with other people in the body of Christ, it is impossible for us to grow into Christ-likeness. It's impossible. John Wesley, he said, there's nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. Our own Chris DeRocco, famous for saying, if you grow alone, you grow weird. And growing weird is not growing into the image and likeness of Christ. Love for one another is an integral part of God's evangelism plan for the nations. We've got to believe that. D.A. Carson, he said the new commandment of Jesus, what Jesus is talking about here in loving one another the way that he has loved us, it's not only the obligation of the new community to respond to the God who has loved them and set them free by offering his son. Neither is it merely the response to God's gracious, gracious choice of them as his people, as great as both those things are. It's a privilege which, when rightly lived out, proclaims the true God before a watching world. This is why Jesus ends his injunction, his words to his followers with this. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ as Jesus has loved you? Anyone can say they know God. Anyone can claim to be in fellowship with God. Anyone can quote verses about God. But that profession is authenticated in the love we have towards one another. And what John's going to remind us of is that profession, it can be bogus. It can be fake. Look at verse 9. Now he's going to get to the diagnostics. That's what we're to do. How can we tell if it's legitimate in us? Look at verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, he's still in darkness. Whoever claims to be in fellowship with God, whoever claims to be walking in the light, whoever claims to be enjoying this satisfying and deepening relationship with the eternal God, yet hates his brother, he's still in darkness. And the problem we have with this verse, and the reason we always scurry around this verse and don't want to really deal with this verse is because we don't like the word hate. I mean, for most of us, those are fighting words. Don't tell me I hate somebody. I don't hate people. When we think about hate, we think about intentional malice, wanting to intentionally do harm to other people, don't we? We think about Hitler hating the Jews, right? That's hatred. That's intentional malice. That's not me. I may not love them the way you're talking about, but that doesn't mean I hate them. It means I'm more indifferent to them, right? We're more comfortable with indifference than we are hatred. Well, 
Let's let Jesus define this word. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus actually uses the same word that John's using here for, for hatred. And this is what he says. He says, blessed are you when people hate you. Same word. And listen to what he says. When they exclude you, revile you, and spurn your name as evil. And in particular, he's talking about people doing that to you because you claim to be a follower of Christ. But Jesus just put feet on this word. He just put legs on this word hate. Hatred in the way that Jesus and the way that John are talking about it is exclusion and and insult and rejection. This is what it means. And listen, can you exclude people? Can you insult people? Can you reject people without intentionally wanting to do malicious harm to them? You can. Our exclusion and insult and rejection, are they absent in the relationships between God's people? Would you look around at the people in this room and the people that you know and the people that you're in relationship with and say that absolutely exclusion, insult, and rejection are absent from your relationship? You're immune to these things? John said, don't fool yourself. Remember back in chapter one? If you say you have no sin, you don't struggle with sin, the truth of God is not in you. Yeah, we, we struggle with these things. We struggle with exclusion and insult and rejection between God's people. I was telling the first service, what is gossip if it's not excluding somebody from something, rejecting somebody, insulting something about somebody? Tell me that's not present in the relationships between God's people? John said the opposite of, of love in this sense, the way Jesus is commanding us, is not indifference. It's actually hatred. And whoever claims to have fellowship with God while he hates his brother, he's still in the darkness. He's still in the darkness. Look down at verse 11. He's going to carry this on just to unpack it a little bit more. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. That's what he just said in verse 9. Now listen to the progression. I want you just to catch the progression here that happens. He's in the darkness and he walks in the darkness. So you can be in the darkness, you can be enshrouded by the darkness, those things can be present in your life and the reality of it is, is what's your response to it? What John has already said is that somebody who walks in the light is growing in their awareness of the seriousness of their sin and this thing particular in, in the seriousness of this hatred towards God's people, this exclusion and rejection and insult of God's people. If you're walking in the light, yes, you still struggle with that but you see the seriousness of it. And when you see it in your life and you experience it in your life, you're growing in your speed and your quickness to agreeing with God about it. It's not indifference. It's hatred. And I'm hating your brother and and your son and your daughter. I'm hating my brother and sister in Christ. God, forgive me. You're going to God and agreeing with God about it. You're receiving his forgiveness. You're receiving that cleansing. That's what it means to walk in the light. But John says, listen, you can profess to know God and abide in him all along. But if you hate your brother, If you begin not just hating your brother, but walking in the darkness, the pattern of your life, the tenor of your life, the character of your life, the ethos of your life is is reflective of this. You're actually now walking in the darkness. You're not just in it, but you're walking in it. When you're walking in it, you don't know where you're going because the darkness has blinded your eyes. He's saying when this becomes the tenor of your life and the ethos of your life, you're not just in darkness, but you begin to walk in darkness. The speed to which you see the seriousness of your sin is declining and you're quicker to disregard your sin than you are to own your sin and agree with God about it. 
You're no longer wanting to bring your sin into the light, to confess your sin, to receive forgiveness, to receive cleansing. You're looking to stay in the darkness, to hide in the darkness, to keep it away from the light. I said, now you're walking in darkness and you don't know where you're going. And you don't know where you're going because darkness has blinded your eyes. You've actually become so at peace in the darkness and so accustomed to the darkness that you don't even see it for what it is anymore. The darkness to you is light. You don't see it for what it is. What John is describing here in verses 9 and verses 11 is an absence of of Christ-like love between God's people that displays a condition of heart that's to be avoided at all costs. It's destruction to your soul. John says the only way to do that is through an increasing understanding and application of the gospel to your life. That's what he's been after this whole time in chapters one and two. And so he says the other response though, one who is walking in the light, seeing the seriousness of their sin, going to God in confession and repentance, receiving forgiveness and cleansing, restoration with God, restoration with their brother. Look at verse 10. This one, walking in the light, is loving his brother or sister in Christ. Whoever loves actively, not in mind, not in intention, not in heart, not in philosophy, not in strategy. Whoever loves, John said, actively, willingly, delightfully, sacrificially to the length and to the extent to which God has loved them. Whoever is doing that, he abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. The one who is actively loving his brother and sister in Christ, walking in the light, It's him whose life is in step with the gospel. It's him whose life is in step with what he professes. It's him or it's her that the world looks at and says, whatever it is that animates that right there, whatever it is that causes him or her to do that right there, that's legit. And whatever that is, I don't have. Because I love myself way too much and I would never do that. I would never do that for someone else because I love myself. I love my comfort. I love my agenda. I love my purposes. I love my wants too much than to do what he or she just did for that person. Whatever is doing that, that's legit. Jesus says, through this, through this kind of love, the world will know that you're mine. And what it is you profess, what it is you proclaim will be authenticated. It's that person, John says, who's abiding in the light. It, it, what's the time is it? Let me give you something. Turn over to Ephesians chapter four. The one thing I love, I was telling you earlier about this particular letter. This church in, in Ephesus has a rich tradition of scripture. Probably, you know, we don't know for sure, but about 20 years before, the apostle Paul would have written a letter to this church. You see, it was Paul that founded this church and planted this church and was with this church, teaching this church in the beginning. And then it was Paul that sent his disciple Timothy to help pastor this church before John came back from exile to then oversee this entire region. So they had a rich tradition of letters and teaching from the apostle Paul. And I want you to see what Paul, probably 20 years earlier, told this church who, who, who now, presently, when John wrote this, probably had some of the same people in there who've been learning this for 20 years, teaching this and applying this. This is what Paul said in Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six. Listen to what he said. He said, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord God. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
He's saying, look, you, you've received uh, the grace of God. You've received grace, and your life should reflect that. Your life should reflect the grace that you have received, especially in your relationships. What Paul is saying here to this same church is that you can't take the grace that you have received seriously. You can't take the gospel seriously and not take your relationships with one another seriously. And so look at what Paul expects to see in the relationships between God's people. Look at what he expects grace to do in the relationships. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He said, your relationships with one another are meant to maintain, not create, maintain through the same grace that you have received, reflected now to one another, the relationships that God has made between you. When God saved you, he called you to himself and he made you part of his family, which means by virtue of your redemption and your salvation, you are now in relationship with God's people. You don't make these relationships. God has placed you in these relationships. And the bond that you have is deeper than any affinity that you can imagine. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in your soul. And Paul says that you're to be eager, zealous, with work and effort and intentionality to maintain what God has already established between you. Which means you and I and our relationships with one another, if we're followers of Christ, are either good stewards of God's grace or bad stewards of God's grace. There's really no option. We're either loving one another in an increasing way to reflect the love that we have received and delighted in and cherished from Jesus himself, or we're doing damage to our relationships with one another. There's no middle ground. There's no indifference. There's love or there's hate. And he said, be eager, be zealous. There's effort involved in this to maintain what God has already established. And he said, here's what's to mark them. I just want to give you a picture of what's to mark these relationships because John doesn't really go there, but I want you to just have a taste of what's to be seen between God's people. He said, our love towards one another, our relationships towards one another that are established by God and his Holy Spirit through the gospel, our love towards one another is meant to be humble, gentle, patient, and faithful, Paul said. This is what the people are to see. This is what authenticates the profession that comes out of our mouths. Paul says, our love towards one another is meant to be humble. Humility, when lived out between each other. Not humility that's a character of soul, but humility done towards someone else. What, what humility in action looks like is that I am quicker to see my own sin, the seriousness of my own sin, the gravity of my own sin, the extent of my own sin. I'm quicker to see that than I am to point out yours. I'm more focused on the seriousness of my own sin than I am on yours. So ask yourself, in your relationships with one another, do you hold other people to a higher standard than you hold yourself? Paul said our love for one another in action, our, our love towards one another is meant to be gentle. Now don't shut me out here, men. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness in the biblical sense is the capacity to use your strength to build up and empower other people. That's, that's real gentleness. A gentle person can use their strength without damaging and tearing down other people. We just commissioned parents in this service and like 25 parents, you know, more babies in the first service. 
moms and dads who are in here, this is what your love towards your children is supposed to look like. Your strength is meant to empower and build up your children. Brothers and sisters in Christ in here, your love for one another is meant to be gentle. It's meant to build up and empower other people. So ask yourself, and you may have to ask other people in your life to be honest with you. Do people that you're in relationship with generally feel beat up or bruised by their relationship with you? Do people walk away from you torn down and not built up? Our love for one another is meant to be gentle. It's meant also to be patient. When patience is active, when patience has is, is, is got legs on it towards other people, it means we don't come at other people with our own agenda for them. It means we don't come at them with what we want to accomplish in their life and what we want to do in their life and what we want to fix in their life. It doesn't come at people with no regard for their own sense of their own need and their own weakness. Are you patient with one another? Do you already have an agenda for everybody else in their life and they need to hurry up and get on it? Is your love patient? And is your love faithful? This is what forbearing means. Forbearance in love actively towards other people means that you love people with humility and patience and gentleness even when they provoke you to anger. Even when you love them and they bite your hand. Even when you love them and they spurn you. Even when you love them and they exclude you, they reject you, they insult you, they express hatred towards you. Forbearing in love. Love that forbears is love that continues to be humble and patient and gentle even when you're provoked by other people. And so do you love people with limits or do you have an agenda that's based on your own perception of people? Do people always walk away from their relationships with you feeling like they have to pay you back for something? Our love with one another is to be humble and gentle and patient and faithful. That's what's to mark the relationships between God's people. And the foundation for that love is not our ability to do it. It's not the strategies we can craft to accomplish it. It's not the rules that we can set up to achieve it. The foundation for that type of love between God's people is God himself. That's what Paul said. The foundation is one spirit, one Lord, and one Father. We love other people because we have been loved by God. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ to the length and to the extent that Jesus has loved us. This is what it means to love one another. And by this, in our life, tangibly and actively, the watching world will look on and go, that's legit. I don't know what the other 95% of the country means when they say, I know God, but that right there, that's legit. Because apart from whatever's making that happen, there's no way I can make that kind of sacrifice. And as followers of Christ, we know that to be true. I know how self-centered I am. I mean, don't you know how self-centered and narcissistic you are apart from the grace of God? It is only the grace of God that compels a person to no longer, Paul said, live for themselves, but live for him who gave himself up for God's glory. This is what authenticates the profession that we make to other people. This, Jesus said, is my commandment to you, the new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You want to know that you know God? 
One of the assurance and the confidence that John is after for God's people he says, you can know that you know because there's an increasing sense of the seriousness of your sin in your life. And as the seriousness of your sin becomes more clear to you, your need to run to the light, to agree with God about your sin, to confess your sin to God, to receive the forgiveness and cleansing that can only from, come from God begins to increase. And as you live in that light and find delight and security in that light, the Spirit of God works in you to produce in you new delight and new affection for obedience towards God, for God's glory, out of gratitude for God's grace. And that particular obedience that John is after is an obedience to Jesus' command that looks like Jesus and loves like Jesus. And John said, if you can see in your life these things, if you can see them growing in your life, if you can see them being lived out in your life, however imperfectly at times, if you can see them beginning to be lived out, you can know that you actually know God. This is what gospel-centered and grace-driven and mission-minded living and love looks like. Walking like Jesus and loving like Jesus. That's the... And that's the acid test of whether or not we really understood the gospel and experienced its power. Not how much we know, not what we can quote, not our words or our strategies, however clever some of them may be, but it's our love for one another that flows out of a delight in the love that God has shown us through Christ. That, John says, is what not only authenticates the profession of your mouth to a watching world, but that's what demonstrates to you the confidence that you can have that you really do know God. We cannot take the gospel seriously and the grace of God seriously and not take our relationships with one another seriously as well. This is what he's after and this is what he wants for God's people. Let me pray for us this morning as we wrap up. God, we want to be imitators of you. We are your children, your beloved children who you have rescued, who you have redeemed, who you have given a new heart and a new spirit. We want to be imitators of you. We want to walk in love. We want to walk as your son Jesus walked. And we want to love others as he has loved us. We want to give ourselves up for others as he has given himself up for us. We do this, God, not out of any sense of earning any favor from you. But we do this, Lord. We want to do this, Lord, out of a delight. Out of a delight and gratitude and the grace that you have shown us. Lord, I pray and I ask that you would do what only you can do to make that a reality in us and in this church, for your glory and our joy. Amen.